glad that you're listening to this podcast. This podcast is a ministry of the Bonners Ferry Baptist Church and of Pastor Devin Neal. All right, if you would stand with me then, please. Jude, beginning verse 11. Woe unto them, for they have gone in the way of Cain and ran greedily after the error of Balaam for reward and perished in the gainsaying of Kor. These are spots in your feasts of charity when they feast with you, feeding themselves without fear, clouds they are without water, carried about of winds, trees whose fruit withereth, without fruit, twice dead, plucked up by the roots, raging waves of the sea, foaming out their own shame, wandering stars to whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. And Enoch also the seventh from Adam prophesied of these, saying, Behold, the Lord cometh with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment upon all and to convince all that are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds, which they have ungodly committed, and of all their hard speeches, which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are murmurs, complainers, walking after their own lust, and their mouth speaketh great swelling words, having men's persons in admiration because of advantage. But, beloved, remember ye the words which were spoken before of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ, how that they told you there should be mockers in the last time, who should walk after their own ungodly lusts. These be they who separate themselves, sensual, having not the Spirit, but ye, beloved, building up yourselves on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Ghost, keep yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life, and of some have compassion, making a difference. And others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garment spotted by the flesh. Now unto him that is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy to the only wise God, our Savior, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and ever. Amen. Thank you. you may be seated. Our, this last message we've started in verse 17. So I'm just kind of give you some reminders as to what we've looked at leading into verse 22 tonight. In verses 17 through 19, Jude, he, he shifts his focus as we've been looking at from defining and warning about these men who've crept in to teaching the people how to respond to these that have crept in among them, teaching them how to, what is the, what's the answer to such ungodly men? I don't find that Jude's answer is find a solution to rid the world of all these kind of people. That's, that's not the solution. Even our Lord, when he dealt with the tares and the wheat, he said he warned us not to try to pluck the tares up, wait until the end of the world. There'll be a time when God separates all these things out. But the answer would be to be strengthened as Christians. So the first thing he did is he called them in verses 17 through 19 to remember the words of Scripture. He said, But beloved, remember ye the words which were spoken before of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. We call that today our New Testament, the Gospels uh, and the, the Acts of the Apostles and so forth. These are the record of what the apostles taught and preached, the foundation they laid. Earlier in Jude, we remember that he reminded them of the Old Testament Scripture. So you already see the concept of a whole Bible, Old and New Testament, being dealt with here in Jude's, Jude's epistle as well as in Second Peter's. There was already apostolic writings being recognized as Scripture. Uh, that's what Peter did with Paul's writings in Second Peter chapter 3. So let me, I, you say, why do you say that? There are those that would say our Bible was not canonized, meaning 
no one even recognized in Old and New Testament till around the 4th century. So certain books in the Bible weren't accepted as Scripture until then. Well, the Roman church didn't canonize the Bible till then. But may I remind us tonight, the canonicity of the Scripture is up to the Holy Spirit of God. And I understand that man may not have recognized there was a time period of sifting between what was man's writing and what God had inspired. But here's the truth. By the time the New Testament was completed and completely written, New Testament writers were recognizing each other's work as Scripture, not just things to be thought about. So Jude's saying, remember the words of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. Remember the record of Old Testament Scripture. May I say this? A a faith built on the written word of God is not a denominational preference. By the way, as Baptists, we're not a denomination. Can I just remind you of that tonight? We we hold to to convictions from the Bible, and so that's that's why we identify or are identified as Baptists, if you would. And so another, another... statements for another time but the point i would make tonight is this some would say this idea of building your faith on the bible uh, as you well know cults teach to do that yeah build it on the bible plus the writing of our founder plus the dictates of the church no the dictates of the church are the words of the bible amen and so jude this concept of building your faith on the written recognizable word of god recorded in scripture is something that's not new. It's not something that originated centuries after the Bible was complete. This is the way the early believers built their faith, on the very words of Scripture, the Bible we hold in our hands, and I'm thankful for that. So there was a call to remember the words of Scripture, a call to remember the wisdom of Scripture in verses 17 through 19. He calls them back to the written Word of God. Remember the words of the apostles, and uh, you say, well, those were spoken words. Spoken words that were written down, amen? Uh, And so then number two, by the way, just along that line, did not Paul in training Timothy teach him to build his personal life and ministry on the written word of God? And that from a child thou hast known the holy scriptures, which are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. That's 2 Timothy uh, 2.15, 2 Timothy 3.15, uh, 2 Timothy 2.15, study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. And then 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. Verse 17, that the man of God may be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. May I remind us tonight, we are to be a Bible people. You say, why are we reminding us of that? Because that's what, that is what will immunize you against apostasy. Being a person who builds what you believe on what God says in this book. Amen? Not what somebody says about the book, but what God says in the book. And so that's, that's where, that's, if we want to be a strong church that's not overcome of apostates, we must re- be reminded of the words of Scripture, Old and New Testament alike, and, and stand firm on that. That was verses 17 through 19. And then he says in verse 19, he begins to, or verse 20, he, there's not only a call to remember, verses 17 through 19, a call to reinforce. We looked at last week. Verses 20 and 20 uh, through 21, he called them to, for sake of outline, to to have construction, spiritual construction in their lives. What we're looking at in Second Peter chapter one on Sunday mornings, he says, "But ye beloved, building up yourselves on your most holy faith." So he tells them to build up themselves on the most holy faith. Grow on your faith. Add add to your faith virtue and knowledge and temperance and patience and 
godliness and brotherly kindness and charity, Peter would say in Second Peter 1. So build yourself up on your most holy faith. Uh, I believe there, as we go out and interact with people, we need to be asking, what kind of a person am I dealing with here spiritually? Someone who is without spiritual life or someone who is not strong in that spiritual life or someone who is. Many times we meet people who have come to faith in Jesus Christ but are extremely confused. It's not because they're not saved. And I think we have to be careful in dealing with people like this because we might lead them the wrong direction. We need to be spiritually discerning and ask God to give us that as we deal with people. They may be people who have not gotten established or steadfast in the faith and have been blown about, and they may need somebody to come along and say, no, this is what the Bible says about salvation. They say, well, I've trusted him. Then you can take the word of God and say, well, if you from your heart have trusted him, then he says he saved you. Now get it settled. Amen? Sometimes folks just need to be established. God did what you trusted him to do. Then you can go from there. Faith and then what you need to do now because he is trustworthy is do anything he tells you. Add virtue to your faith. Be valiant for the faith. And so nonetheless, construction. We need to be strong spiritually and that's a personal responsibility. It is our job to get in our Bibles. It's our job to pray over our scripture reading. It's our job to search the scriptures. Our job to apply the scriptures and, uh, and so forth. And so spiritual construction. Number two, he calls them to reinforce through communication, through praying in the Holy Ghost. We dealt with that. Uh, I love that the definition of that word in. It is a relation of rest. We pray resting upon the Holy Spirit of God. The Bible says we are sealed by the Spirit to the day of redemption. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30. We are sealed by the Spirit unto the day of redemption. It says the same thing in Ephesians 1, 13 that we're sealed by the Spirit. We ought to rest in the work of the Holy Spirit of God, having regenerated us. He has sealed us. He has promised to never leave us nor forsake us, the Lord Jesus. And so we pray from a relation of rest. We don't pray from a relation of fear or doubt, but of resting in the Holy Spirit of God, not only to keep us, but to direct us. Romans 8 says that He intercedes for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. We ought to. Tr- we have to rest upon the Holy Spirit of God to guide us and to intercede To God the Father, through the Lord Jesus Christ on our behalf, we pray in the Holy Spirit, resting upon His presence and His working in our lives, His direction in our lives. Letter C, we are reinforced through consecration. Pray in the Holy Ghost. Keep yourselves in the love of God. We pointed out that's very simple. We keep ourselves in the love of God by obeying the Lord. That's how we abide in His love, according to John 14, 15. Revelation 2, 4, and 5 talks about uh, doing the first works and uh, going back to our first love. How many of us realize we don't lose our first love, we leave our first love? That's what the, the Lord told the Ephesian church. He said, you have left your first love. Do the first works. You know what the first works were? Simple obedience by faith. When we obey by faith, we abide in his love. John chapter 15, verses uh, 7 through 10, tell us essentially the same thing. So uh, consecration, we're to keep ourselves in the love of God. Contemplation, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. Our focus is on the Lord's return. So we reinforce through construction and communication, consecration through obedience, and looking for the Lord's return. Now tonight we begin with the verses 22 and 23 to look at the call to rescue. You notice before he tells them to rescue others, he said, first of all, you need to remember the words of Scripture. You need to reinforce your spiritual, your spiritual state so that you can, and we find verse 23, then you're going to go and rescue others. That's what verse 23 talks about, pulling them out of the fire. 
How many of us understand firefighters have to go through a regimen of physical fitness? They have to pass. Your police officers have to have a certain level of physical fitness before they can even get a badge. Now, why is that? When there's, when there's officer training, I mentioned this in a recent uh, message, maybe in the last Thursday night. When there's officer training, there is training so that they will be equipped to go do the job they are hired to do. They are law enforcement officers. They are peace officers. If you do not know how to go into a situation and deal with some kind of a ruffian and come out on the other side alive, you're going to go in and get harmed and damaged. You may go in to a, a domestic dispute and try to get some children out of a domestic dispute as a peace officer and not be able to handle that if you are not properly prepared. I cannot help but believe that the verses prior to verse 22 are about preparation. There are, there are apostates, corrupt, vile, evil men in the name of religion, in the name of faith, in our world today, corrupting people, turning the grace of God into what? Lasciviousness. And what people are doing is being prepared for the fires of hell. And God says, you need to make a difference. And that difference there, we'll talk about it in just a moment, is the ability to make a distinction between the apostate and those that are being led astray by the apostate. You and I need to be able to make a distinction and know that some need compassion. The apostate, I don't find that Jude is saying give the apostate compassion. I can't even read that into the text. These are men who've known the truth, turned from it willfully and want nothing to do with it. But there are those that they are destroying and damaging and leading astray and some need compassion. Others we save not with compassion but with fear. Not that we abandon compassion. We'll say about that in a minute. But the whole context of verses 22 and 23 is rescuing people. Rescuing those that are being defiled in this wicked age in which we live. I'm going to tell you something. We are living in the age where the spirit of Antichrist is alive and well. It's working hard. I'm to, I'll just say this. I have, I have no doubt this constant call for unity at any cost is not from God. Now, that doesn't set well with some. That's because you, you hardline independent Baptists don't want unity. I love unity. How good and how pleasant it is when brethren dwell together in Unity. But friend, check your Bible. Never do you accomplish unity by abandoning the truth. Never. Never. I'm going to say it one more time for emphasis. Never do you accomplish unity by abandoning truth. Unity at the cost of truth is called compromise. That's what it is. We must love God first. You have to love God before you can love men. And if I have to abandon obedience to God in order to love men, I cease to love them both. And we'll say that again. If I have to abandon obedience to God in order to love my fellow man, I no longer love either one of them. I love my fellow man by loving God enough to obey him and loving God enough to obey him even if it causes my fellow man to hate me. I'm still to love him. Amen? That, that never changes. But in this world of the spirit of Antichrist, it says unity at any cost. Now, this, is, this is the spirit behind ecumenicism. Ecumenicism sounds nice and it feels nice on its face. Shouldn't all the churches get along? Well, maybe. But they don't. And there's reasons they don't. Amen? And the point would be this. Our first duty as Christians is to be loyal to the word of our master. First and foremost. Ultimately, and that's never changed. And if I, my loyalty to the word of my master means I'm unable to get along, I mean, if I have to abandon 
this loyalty to what the Lord said here in order to further a greater cause. It's not a greater cause. If I have to abandon the truth of God's word, the truth about salvation, the truth about uh, holiness and so forth, then something's wrong. And so I believe Jude is explaining, of course, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God, how we make a difference in an apostate world. We don't, we don't make it by being loose or, or, or um, how shall I say, a lack of caution and care. It is with compassion coupled with caution. Both. Okay, so let's, let's get into verses 22 and 23. So he's just dealt with all of these, the effects of these apostates and so forth. Uh, and, and I believe we could go back to the Old Testament, especially the story of Korah, and you'd get a clear picture of how what we're going to read here in verses 22 and 23 should be carried out. Okay, before God killed Korah, Dathan, and Abiram, you remember what he said? Korah, Dathan, and Abiram had an influence over the entire Israelite host. They had an influence. Here you have a couple of hundred men led by a couple of men. Korah was a man who, who was a self-appointed. He separated himself. He believed that uh, he charged Moses and Aaron with, with taking too much upon themselves, doing too much instead of letting others serve and so forth. And, and uh, instead of Korah serving where God had placed him, he lifted himself up, exalted himself. He got some important men around him and those couple hundred men led by Korah and Dathan and Abiram, got an uprising and a revolt started against Moses and ultimately against God. But before God destroyed them and the fire fell, you know what God said? Remove yourselves from these men. Remove yourselves from them. Get away from their tents. Get away from what they have. If you don't want to die with them, you got to pull away from them. (laughs) See? What God was concerned with, God could have just started licking up the host with fire. He could have opened up the earth and swallowed them all. But he was still concerned about rescuing souls. He always is. Amen. Uh, God does not delight in the destruction of the wicked. Nor should we. And so then there's a call here at the end of this chapter. I believe this is where it ends. So we'll understand this warning of apostates is not the intent is not to harden the heart of Christians against sinners. It is to keep us an under, have us an understanding of the spiritually dangerous world we live in and instruct us about how to go about the God's work and carrying out His will in our lives in the midst of a defiled and a deadly spiritual culture. And so verse 22, he says, verse 21, keep yourselves in the love of God. So maintain your own spiritual well-being. Keep yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life, and of some have compassion. Uh, it's been said, the difference between pity and compassion, pity is a feeling of sorry for someone else's state that never moves you to do anything. Oh, I feel so bad for that person. So let me put it to you this way. Pity says, I can't imagine. I, we've all made statements like this. How do unsaved people cope with difficulties in life? That's pity. We feel bad for their, for their lack of hope. Compassion goes to them and tells them how they can be delivered from that. Compassion, pity says, oh, wouldn't it be horrible to know you're going to go to hell when you die? Compassion says, I've got to go warn them and tell them how to be saved. Pity was the Levite walking in Luke chapter 10, going over and look at the poor fellow that had been beat up and saying, wow, that's bad, and going right on and just doing nothing about it. But compassion moved the Samaritan to go down and pour in oil and wine and put him on his own beast and take him to an inn and pay for his lodging until he got well. 
Compassion moves us to do something. Compassion is beyond pity. It's beyond feeling sorry for someone. Compassion moves in our lives, and that's why I'm not only entirely sure if there's not a double meaning of the word making a difference. Because you first read it and you think it's compassion that makes a difference in the life of somebody, and it does. You can read Luke chapter 10 and the story of the Good Samaritan and know that's true. But the meaning of this word making a difference, it, it literally means to make a distinction, to be able to draw a line of distinction. Compassion allows us to say there's a difference in the apostate and the person that has been deceived by the apostate. You and I are all going to meet people that are caught up in cults. They're caught up in in Mormonism or they're caught up and we must understand there's a difference between the person that's been raised up in that mess or been sucked into that mess and those who are promoting it. There's a difference in those who have developed those foul doctrines and promote them and defend them, those devilish doctrines and have no intent of ever changing, and someone who in a moment of grief in their life. Do you know how many people have gotten sucked into a cult during a moment of grief? They lost a loved one. They lost finances. They lost some health. And that cult reached out to them and said, Oh, we will help you and drew them in and won't let them go. There are people that are affected by apostates that are not apostates. And we need to have enough spiritual discernment to know the difference of some have compassion making a difference. By the way, I believe the Spirit of God gives you that. You find someone that's a scorner. I don't find anywhere in the Bible scorners needing compassion. Someone says, we we have this mentality. I, I think it's needful for us to deal with this truth tonight. There is a mentality that is promoted among us today that what lost people need wholesale, everybody, every person out there just needs compassion. That is not true. Not true. The Lord Jesus did not minister to everyone with compassion. I'm not telling you to have compassion for everyone. But you tell me that telling the Pharisees that you are whited sepulchers is compassion. It's not. Why? What was the difference? Why did he tell them, you're whited sepulchers, you're full of dead men's bones, you're a generation of vipers? He called Herod a fox. Go tell that fox, meaning he is a sneaking chicken thief. That's what he is. Isn't that what a fox is? (laughs) But you're just supposed to be compassionate with everybody. No, we need to be discerning. God does what with the proud? Now, don't misunderstand. We're not God. So we have to be very careful with this. But God resisteth the proud. And he gives grace to the humble. When you have someone passionately defending a provable lie, compassion is not what that person needs. When you have someone that is confused by that lie and says, I don't know what to believe, that's altogether different. And I believe God, we need the help of the Lord to recognize that in an age of an apostasy, we're going to meet people that believe some harebrained things. And if they are willing to hear the truth, May we be compassionate enough to pour in the oil and wine of God's word because they've been wounded. You know who the apostates are? They're the thieves and the robbers on the road to Jericho that beat up the man and leave him half dead by the wayside. That's who the apostates are. We need to recognize the difference between a thief and a robber and someone who's been robbed. Thieves and robbers generally aren't bruised, bloody, and broken. They just do that to others. We meet people that have been... You know, I'll, I'll, Let me put it to you this way. We meet people... I'm going to be careful how I speak tonight. But we have, we have plenty of cults in this county we live in. Cults. 
You meet people coming out of those cults, they want nothing to do with religion. None. You know why? They've been beaten, bloodied, bruised, and broken by the cult they've been in. And by the way, you're going to stand for truth, you'll be called a cult too, but that's okay. But they're coming out of that beat up, bruised, and broken by apostates. Don't think, by the way, just be very clear. Baptist churches are not immune from having apostates get in them, beat, bloody, bruise, and break people. And so there are people that are wounded by that. You know what? I believe this. We have to be very careful with those people. Because if we're not careful, we'll misrepresent the Lord to them. In their mind, you know what? All religion is the same. We have to be discerning. That is a person that was bloodied by an apostate, someone that's wounded by an apostate, and we wish and desire to help them to help them heal, to help them get, get free of their guilt, to be cleansed of their sin, see them recovered to, to spiritual health, if they, see them saved, see them recovered. I believe the end in Luke chapter 10 is the local New Testament church. The Lord Jesus entrusts those that he saves to our care to tend to their wounds until they are whole. He heals the brokenhearted. He sets the captive free. We need to have compassion. And so that is that tenderness of heart towards someone who's been wounded by false teaching, by apostates, to those who've been sucked in. You know what? When you've been under the influence of an apostate, you get the impression that all religion does the same thing and you'll dismiss the gospel the next time you hear it. This is why, gentlemen, for we who go out door to door, it is important. I'm preaching myself right here. It's important to remember sometimes, sometimes the reason our people are angry when we walk to the door is in their mind, you're just like every other apostate out here. They see all religion the same. doesn't matter. Baptist, Mormon, JW, you're all the same. We have to be discerning that if that's a person that's been damaged by an apostate, we have to walk up there and not get offended that we might be falsely accused. And I have, that's something I have to hear and, and understand. And So there's where compassion comes in. So he says we need compassion if we're going to rescue sinners, a tender heart toward those who've been wounded spiritually. Letter B, though, we need circumspection. We need to be very discerning, as we've been mentioning. And if some have compassion, making a difference. Uh, Romans chapter 12, verse 9. Let love be without dissimulation. Abhor that which is evil. Cleave to that which is good. We have to maintain a tender heart toward people and a firm abhorrence of sin. All at the same time. We have to realize sin is still sin. And the reason that person is hurting is because of sin. And so we must abhor that which is evil. Here's why Romans 12, 9, part of the reason that's in the Bible, let love be without dissimulation, abhor that which is evil, cleave that which is good. Because it's very easy in the name of love to change our attitude towards sin. To say, well, I love people, therefore I don't have a problem with their sin. Now we've ceased from compassion and we've entered compromise. You see, let me ask you something. If a doctor says, you know, I've dealt with so many people who have cancer that I just... Cancer doesn't really bother me anymore. If I find somebody's got stage four, I just tell them, don't let it bother you. I've met lots of people like you with stage four cancer. Would you think there's something wrong with that doctor? If he loves his patients, he never changes his attitude toward cancer. In fact, the more he deals with, the more he should say, I've got to find a way to help these people. People that say, eh, I, I, love, I love sinners, so their sin doesn't bother me. No, if you love sinners, it bothers you more. Let love be without dissimulation. Abhor that which is evil. Cleave to that which is good. So we need circumspection. Some have compassion. Circumspection making a difference. A distinction 
These are those that have been affected by the apostate, not the apostate themselves. But then we need to have caution. Notice this. And others, and others, so here's the distinction. Some need compassion, but others save with fear. So you're going to save some with compassion. You're going to rescue some with compassion. Others save with fear. You say, now, is this fear for them? Certainly. The Bob Paul said this, uh, and knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. But you know what else I believe? And I, I was much helped by one commentator who commented on this. He said, let me give you an analogy. He said, when you have someone with a highly contagious disease brought into a hospital, how do medical providers respond to that? Gloves, masks, gowns. Why? Why would that be? I remember visiting a man on his deathbed one time, and before we could go into his room, they handed us all this gear. And we saw some of this during COVID, some of it overreaction, some of it not. Where they hand you all this gear and said, before you can even walk in the room, you have to put all this on. And then before you leave, you have to take all that and dispose of it properly because he had such a highly contagious disease. It could spread that quickly. They didn't want it leaving that building. So you're allowed to go in the room under these conditions. I mean, another preacher friend, we started to leave and the nurse called us, ah, stop. (laughs) We we weren't following protocol. We, We got help with that. So anyway, why though? They were trying to save with fear. Meaning, sin spreads easily. And you and I, and this this commentator I read, the preacher, made such a good point. He said, when dealing with people who have been contaminated by sin, you and I must quickly rescue them, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garment spotted by the flesh. Don't even hold on to the garment, lest it pass their contamination affect you. Paul told Timothy, Be not thou therefore partaker of other men's sins. Keep thyself pure. If we're not careful, here's what happens. One of the warnings we have about entertainment is this. It desensitizes us to what? The world's entertainment. Sin. Years ago, uh, 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 Lester Roloff, who's in heaven now, he warned in the 1960s about television in Christians' homes. He said, one of these days, and I heard this this week, I heard this warning from him this week, one of these days you're going to be letting sodomites into your living room through that, that device. We're doing it. There are believers today who are letting programs into their home that is flaunting the sin of sodomy. Well, I don't like it. I hate it, but it started way back when with something a lot smaller than that. Now, we say that about entertainment, but I'll say this. If you deal with people in steep and deep sin in their lives regularly enough, you can get desensitized to it. It can become old hat to know that person's living in that deep sin or that deep sin. Before you know it, we may let our guard down about the danger of sin even in trying to rescue others. This is why sometimes people who have done great work for the Lord end up getting into some of the sin they've dealt with. Because it wasn't with fear. That fear is not uh, uh, an intimidating fear like 2 Timothy 1.7, but a healthy respect for the contaminating effect of sin. Sin is likened to leprosy. Now, do you think that a priest that was examining a leprous spot said, now, come here, let me handle you real good. No, you'd be very careful. That's why there was quarantine in leprosy. We're going to put you over here for a while. You know what they were trying to do? Save with fear. May I say this? 
I've said to you before, oh, how I long to see folks saved out of deep sin and saved and transformed. But may I say, as we deal with sinners, we have to be very careful. If the church be a hospital, we have to be careful how we deal with those who are diseased with sin. Pulling them out of the fire must be a hasty snatch lest we get in trouble with them. Make sense? And so then, some with compassion, others with fear. Fear for them, fear for us, yes. Sin is destructive. It will bring God's wrath on them. It may bring spiritual corruption upon us. So as we deal with sinners, and I believe we see this even in our age. Uh, may I say this? I knew of men years ago. Let me give you an example. Who in a desire to rescue young people out of the rock and roll culture began to study rock and roll. Some of those same men are no longer in the ministry today off into immorality and some of the very sins they preached against. You say they never were real. Well, very likely they were, but they didn't save with fear. They didn't realize, let him that thinketh he standeth take heed lest he fall. There is no temptation taken you but such as is common to man. So as we do the work of rescuing sinners, yes, it requires compassion, but it also requires caution. It requires us to say, you know what, I've got to be skillful at the work I do, maintaining a tender heart toward the sinner, but never softening my view of sin and its dangers. Sin is evil, sin is destructive, and if we're not careful, in the name of compassion, we open ourselves to the corruption of sin. We must maintain both wise as serpents and harmless as doves. You know what that entails? Wise as serpents, caution. Harmless as doves, compassion. Some with compassion, others with fear, making a difference, pulling them out of the fire, the fires of hell. Yes, God must discard them into the eternity of hell if they do not, if they're never cleansed through the blood of His Son. But you and I must, with fear, pull them out of the fire. Hating. What's the attitude there? Is hate and compassion compatible in the same heart? Compassion toward the lost, hating the garment, not only hating the sin. That garment that would deal with, like the garment that's spotted with leprosy. Cast the garment in the fire. Don't retain it. Get it away. It's defiling. It's corrupting. It's influential. And so then, hating even the garment is spotted by the flesh. This requires, on our part, conviction. A conviction over what is defiling, what is not, and maintaining a, 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 a hatred and abhorrence of evil while at the same time operating in compassion. And so, uh, uh, we, we must have compassion, circumspection, caution, and conviction. And finally, there's a call to reverence, verses 24 and 25, as he wraps up the book, and we'll wrap up tonight. He says, Now unto him that is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. I love that verse. Jude reminds them, while it's your job to keep yourself in the love of God, and it's your job to build yourself up in your most holy faith, let me remind you again, though, you are ultimately kept not by your ability, but by His. Now unto Him that is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of His glory with exceeding joy. It's not only the Lord's ability to present us faultless. He does that through His shed blood, but to do so with exceeding joy. In Bible Institute last night, we considered the parable of the talents and those who are good and faithful were told, enter into the what of the Lord. Help me, students. What was that? The joy of the Lord. Don't you want the meeting of the Lord at the judgment seat to be a joyous occasion? Do you know who's able to do that? He is. If we'll live lives of faith in Him and operate according to His Word, we'll not only be able to be presented faultless, meaning fit for heaven through His shed blood, but to be presented before Him with joy. 
have an abundant entrance. It's exactly the same thing Peter deals with in 2 Peter 1. If we remember the words of the Savior, we'll reinforce our faith through building ourselves up on our most holy faith to be strong as a Christian, rescue sinners with compassion and caution while being circumspect at His command. We can stand before Him. He can keep us from falling, meaning He can maintain us. It is possible. You know what Jude's saying? In a world of an apostasy, you can live a stable, steadfast Christian life. Now, this is important because many times the presence of apostasy becomes an excuse for compromise. Well, the world's so wicked and there's so much evil and there's so much false teaching. So, how many, how many people have quit church because of the spiritual atmosphere of the world? You know, Jude's saying the Lord's ability is not hampered by man's wickedness. Man is wicked, but he still is able to keep you from falling, to present you faultless before him at his coming with joy. You can be presented not only steadfast and stable and saved, but with joy. And then finally, he says, verse 25, to the only wise God, our Savior, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and ever. Amen. He concludes with, the presence of apostasy is no blemish on the power and the effectiveness of our God. Meaning, there are those... What is one of the number one questions naysayers say? If God is so good, why is there so much evil in the world? Isn't that one of the number one complaints against God? I, I told one of my kids today, I said, the Calvinist God is not as sovereign as ours. The Calvinist God has to force people to do things his way or he's not sovereign. The God of the Bible is sovereign enough to give man will, allow him to exercise that will, and still be wise enough to overcome what man does against his will and not be offended by it. <laughs> He's still worthy of glory. Amen? And so some say, well, you're not a Calvinist. You don't believe in the sovereignty of God. No, we just want to believe it the way the Bible teaches it. Amen? God's sovereignty does not negate man's ability to make choices. It is he remains the same in spite of our choices. Uh, And we end here with God's ability, God's authority, and his adoration to the only wise. I love this too. The only wise God, our Savior. Is this speaking of God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit? What are you just talking about? Yep, you got it. <laughs> Only why I've got our Savior. Be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and ever. Amen. He's still on the throne. Apostasy has not displaced the Lord Jesus Christ from his throne. It just tells us to be prepared for it. Amen. And how to prepare for it. That's the conclusion tonight. And what a way to conclude. To the only wise God, our Savior, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and ever. Amen. And he's the one that has the ability to cause us to stand faithful in in a wicked world. May we remember that tonight and be faithful to him based on his ability, not on our own.